We've been on this uh, series called What is Love? We've looked at the different Greek words translated love and how that's a little bit more defining than the English word love, which that's a pretty generic word. So we've been kind of breaking that down. Today we're going to finish this series uh, by talking about love like Jesus. How did Jesus model, demonstrate, show the love that he had on the inside? Because love, you know, is a verb. It's not a thing. It's a verb. It's an action word. We need to have some action in our lives. So we want to talk about that. So today, as we're looking at love like Jesus, I want to look at four different ways that Jesus demonstrated this love that he had inside of him. And if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. If you haven't made that decision yet, I would encourage you to take that next step and allow the Spirit of God to come on the inside of you. The Spirit of God is the nature of God. And when the Spirit of God comes into you, you begin to develop this nature of God. It doesn't always happen instantly. It's something that grows on you, matures on you. So we're looking at that. And today I want to talk about four different ways that Jesus demonstrated love and a whole lot of scriptures to support this. Uh, So I got to go kind of fast. I was about two minutes over in the early service. I got got to pick it up. So here's the first way. Jesus loved the outcasts. You know what an outcast is? Somebody that doesn't feel like they belong. Or somebody that doesn't belong. And I just want you to know here at New Hope Christian Center you belong. There there are no outcasts here. However, there are a lot of people that feel like outcasts in this room right now. You came in and you really don't feel like you fit. So you just kind of sit back in the shadows And I want you to know you do fit. You do belong. The church of Jesus Christ is what we make it. We can be a lousy church or we could be a vibrant, alive church. I I prefer the second. I want to be vibrant and alive. So let me share four scriptures to support this idea of Jesus loving the outcasts. Here's the first one. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 28 uh, where... Paul says, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, you are not a part of the church. You can come and sit in a seat, but you're not a part of the vibrant, living, alive church of Jesus Christ. We want you to be, but you have to kind of change from what you used to be. There's a change that takes place in us. He goes on, verse 27, he says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've clothed yourself. That means you put something on. It covers the old you, becomes the new you. When you accept Christ as your Savior, He covers you. Covers up all the blemishes, everything everything that's not pleasing to God, He covers that up. And the Spirit of Christ on the inside then brings that new life out inside of us. Verse 28, there is neither Jew in the church, he's talking about in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's not saying, now that Jesus has paid the price for our sin, there's not males and females in the church, we are the same. He's not saying that at all. We'd be pretty stupid 
if we didn't know there was a difference between a male and a female? Of course there is. But what he's saying is, in the function of the body of Christ, of the church of Jesus Christ, in that function, there's no difference. It doesn't make any difference if your skin is white or if it's black or any color in between. It doesn't make any difference how much money you make or don't make. It doesn't make any difference how much education you have or don't have. It doesn't matter. We're all equal at the cross. So we need to think that way because there are still some churches that think there is a a favored class in the church. The men kind of make the decisions, but the women kind of follow along. That's not the church that the Bible is talking about. It says there's no difference. The same Holy Spirit that resides inside of men also resides inside of women. It's the same Holy Spirit. So the, the point is, if you want to write this down, there is no favored class in the church of Jesus Christ. We're all equal, and we all must treat one another the same. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Here's the second scripture that talks about Jesus loving the outcasts. It's uh, Galatians 5.14. He says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of us in this room, we love ourselves. We, we say we don't. We try to be humble. But next time, next Sunday morning, measure the amount of time you spent in front of the mirror trying to make sure you look really good or I guess I should say as good as you can. (laughs) Don't we? Of course we do. We like ourselves. We don't want other people to look down on us. So the second point is we need to give our life away. I'm supposed to treat everybody else just like I want them to treat me. That's the golden rule. I want everybody to treat me with respect. So I need to treat everybody else with respect. I need to be careful in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't ignore certain people. There's no favored class. And we need to give our lives away for investing in other people. If you want our church to be better, starts with us. starts with you individually. We all need to do better, better job of what we're doing. Here's a third scripture that talks about loving the outcast. Psalm 147, verses 2 and 3. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem, gathering up Israel's exiles. God heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. That's the book of Psalms talking about Old Testament. But the principle works here. God gathers together. I mean, look around in this room how many people are here. Why, why is this many, this, did this many people come here at this place at the same time to meet together? Why did we do that? Because God's gathering us together. We're gathered. What the, this, is the, uh, this is the church. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ek means out of. See is a, an assembly. We are an assembly of people called out of the world. That's what the church is. He gathers together to heal. Heal us. So if the Spirit of Christ is inside of me, I should be thinking and feeling and, and acting like Jesus Christ. 
I'm his hands, I'm his feet, so are you. We're all here together. This is the body of Christ coming together. We function like Jesus functioned. And the purpose is to gather us together so that we could be healed and set free. So the Spirit of God that lives inside of each of us has a job to do this morning. There are people around you that are broken, they're hurting, they're wounded, they're damaged. And it's my job to help bring healing. It's your job to help bring healing to the people around you. Because we are the body of Christ. Here's the fourth scripture that talks about loving the outcasts. This is Jesus' mission. That's the point. It's Jesus' mission. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. It's not my job to come in and fuss over the woolly sheep, make everybody feel good about themselves. That's not my job. My job as a messenger of Jesus Christ is to seek and to save the lost. So I can't just focus on the Christians here. I've got to focus on the lost, the people that haven't, the pre-Christians, the people that have potential to become Christians. We've got to focus on them. And I can't do this alone. I need your help. So we all need to kind of have this focus on how do we help seek and save the lost. That's our mission as well as his mission. A hundred years ago, actually more than that, there was a man back in the 1870s named Dwight L. Moody. He was an evangelist in Chicago. You may have heard that name. Uh, Moody Bible College is named after him. He was a shoe salesman. He got his start in ministry by renting a pew in a church. Back then they didn't have free will offerings like we do. We, we allow you to give if you want, and you can keep coming if you don't want to give too. Didn't have free will offerings. They rented pews. And you, you rented a whole pew for a certain amount of money. And he had this passion for the street kids in Chicago. And so he rented a pew, and he went out on the streets, and he invited these street kids to come in and sit in his pew in this, in this church didn't have a lot of money, just a shoe salesman. And I don't know how good of a salesman he was. But when he got that pew filled up, he rented another pew and went out and got more street kids to come to church. And then he ended up renting a third pew. And by the time he was about ready to go into full-time ministry, he rented a fourth pew. So he had four pews of these stinky, ragged street kids. And all the people, the, the good people of the church didn't like these street kids coming in because they didn't know how to sit still, they didn't know how to behave, and they just stunk. But he brought them in. That's what he did. Seek and save the lost. We have in our church what we call a guest ministry team. It's a group of people that know what their job is. Some people are out in the foyer. They, they, you met them this morning when you came in. They had a big smile on their face, shaking your hand, making you feel welcome. It's the guest ministries team. That's their job. That's their ministry. That's what they do. Others of them, back in the office, making coffee, bringing coffee out here so that when newcomers come in, they can get a cup of coffee. We don't want them falling asleep in church. We give them some, a little bit of caffeine. 
And there are other things that this guest ministries team does behind the scenes. Actually, that's where we're weakest. It's the people that don't want to be up in front of people, but they want to make a difference in the church. They want to make a difference. They want, when somebody comes to New Hope for the first time, they want to make sure they have a good experience. They feel like they've been welcomed. They feel they're treated like we expected them to come. We planned for them to come. So if you'd like to be a part of that guest ministries team, we don't have all the positions filled. We're looking for somebody that wants to make a difference and help our church grow and help make, a, make an opportunity to touch someone's life uh, when they first come in the door. This is what we're looking for. So if you, you're interested in that, talk to Pastor Frank. He's here. He's right back there in the corner. See him after church. If you can't find him, come see me. I'll get you connected. And we will promise not to put you in a job you don't want to do. What we want to do is train you for a job that you're gifted for. God designed you for this purpose. So if you talk to Pastor Frank, he can get you set up in the guest experience team. All right, so that's, that's the, the first uh, way Jesus loved. He loved the outcasts. Here's the second way he loved. He loved his enemies. He loved his enemies. I mean, you could see it in the way he treated them. He loved them. Sometimes he was firm, but he loved them. And if the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us, we've got to love our enemies. Love is a verb. It's an action word. So I've got four scriptures to support this. Here's here's the first one. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 29. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear... Notice, not everybody hears. I say to you who are listening and paying attention, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other cheek also. And from him who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. That's tough medicine. I don't want to do that. Somebody's going to smack me on the cheek. I want to give it to him right back. But he's telling me, he's telling you, he's telling all of us to love our enemies into the kingdom. The goal is to get them to come into the kingdom. They're asking, they're acting the way they are because they're not in the kingdom. We need to love them into the kingdom. Loving is hard to do. Don't tell me that Christianity, where you, where you, where you, you lean on Jesus as a crutch, so Christianity is for weaklings who aren't strong. Don't give me that. This is tough stuff. When your enemy wants to hurt you and you do something good in return, that takes guts. Christianity is a strong thing. Too much. Too many worldly people are too weak to do that. The minute you love your enemies, you allow God to go after them. Because he's a good God. He's a good God. All the time, he's a good God. God is good. There, got you to say it. (laughs) He is always good. He always has good intentions. Don't get mad at him because things didn't go your way. There's a purpose for that. There's a reason. He's a master designer, a craftsman, trying to develop you into what he wants you to be. 
It's hard to do. Jesus modeled this at the end of his life when they nailed him to a cross and he was hanging there in misery and agony and they looked up and mocked him. And Jesus said, remember what he said? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Maybe we should respond like that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. I'm a child of God. And when they attack me, they don't know what they're really doing. They don't know they're getting God upset, getting God angry. They don't realize that. So, Father, forgive them. If I fight to defend myself, God just sits back and watches me. He watches it happen. But if I forgive them, do some good turn in return, God goes after them. He'll clean their clock. He'll change their life. But I have to get out of the way. The only only place in the Bible where it talks about my rights, there's only one place for a Christian. It says, I have a right to become a son or a daughter of God. That's the only right I have. I have a right to become a son or a daughter of God. And if I'm going to be a son or daughter of God, the Spirit of God comes inside of me, and I need to love my enemies. Jesus has given us this advice. Here's the second uh, supporting scripture to loving your enemies. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When God approves of your life, even your enemies will end up shaking your hand. Proverbs 16, 7. God is a peacemaker. That's the point. Are you playing into that? Are you a, if he's a peacemaker and his spirit lives inside of you, he'll make you a peacemaker. Are you defending yourself or are you making peace? We need to be people who make peace. Here's the third scripture. Watch your attitude. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not gloat. When your enemy falls, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. If you're glad your enemy fell flat on his face, your enemy got caught in something he was doing, your enemy got punished by the hand of God, if you're glad, don't rejoice. Be careful, because if God sees you rejoicing, he may change his mind. And lift that problem off of that person when that problem is the only thing that's going to turn them around. So watch your attitude in response. Let God, let God deal with your enemies. He can do it. I know this. I've watched God do it again and again. Every time I see somebody... uh, do something unfair, unkind to me, I say to myself, I recognize this. This is a test. This is a test set up from God. God's watching to see what I'm going to do, and I'm determined I'm going to pass the test. So I look for some way to do something positive, say something positive about the person saying bad things. Just watch. Just let God do it. And here is the fourth thing. You only need to be still. Every Christian needs to grab a hold of this. You only need to be still. As long as you're fighting your enemy, God just lets it happen. 
just watches it. But if you give it to God, He'll go after them and change their life. This is how it works. Exodus 14, 14, God says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's, a, that's in the Bible. You only need to be still. Just be still. Just wait on God. Watch Him work things out. After apartheid ended in South Africa, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and elected president of the country. One of the first things he did as president was establish a commission, both blacks and whites, to investigate crimes against humanity while apartheid was in place. One of these people arrested was a white police officer who had publicly beaten to death a man and his only son. At the hearing where they found him guilty, the judge asked the widow of the man who was killed and the mother of the son if there was anything she wanted to say. And she said, Your Honor, I would just like to approach this man who killed my husband and my son and give him a hug to let him know I forgive him. And the judge gave her permission. So she walked up to the front and as she went to embrace this man, he was so overcome with emotions, he wept, cried, and as she put her arms around him, he passed out. He just fainted with all the emotion of knowing that she was willing to forgive him for the injustice that he had done. That's what turns lives around. Loving your enemies. My clock's going faster than my mouth can. Here's the third thing about loving like Jesus. Jesus loved through boundaries. You and I need to learn how to establish Christian boundaries in our life. The problems we face are because we haven't set boundaries or we haven't followed the boundaries we have set. So I want to talk about setting boundaries. What's a boundary? It's a rule. You know, every game has rules. If you're a golfer, how many golfers? If you're a golfer, raise your hand. Let me see. Okay, you got a, got a couple golfers. Great. One of the rules to golfing is you play it where it lies. If you don't like where the ball is, you can't move it over to where you can swing at it a little bit easier. You play it where it lies. If you like basketball, and I think pretty much everybody in here is a Hoosier. Most of us are Hoosiers anyway. You like basketball. You know about basketball. Here's one of the boundaries in basketball. It's a foul line. You don't carry the ball across the foul line. You'll hear the whistle blow if you do. You play within. These are boundaries. These are rules that we follow. Nobody likes to play any game with somebody that won't follow the rules. So a boundary is a rule. Let me share six scriptures, six rules for setting boundaries. Here's here's the first one. You can carry another's load, but don't let them dump on you. You can carry someone else's burden. You can carry someone else's load, but don't let them dump it on you. Set boundaries around yourself. 
Galatians chapter 6 verse 5 says, For each one should carry their own load. If you try to carry everybody else's load, you become overburdened, and they keep coming back for you to carry more and more and more load for them. Every parent learns that you have to teach your child responsibility. One of, the, one of the things about teaching them responsibility is letting them make mistakes, their own mistakes, because that's how you learn. You don't learn when mom and dad bail you out of every mistake you make. So we need to set boundaries. Here's the second rule for boundary setting. Work within others' boundaries. Yeah, you should set boundaries for yourself, but you should also recognize other people's boundaries. Don't cross the line of their boundaries. Proverb 25, verses 16 and 17 says it in a way that I really like from the Message Bible. When you're given a box of candy, don't gulp it all down. Eat too much chocolate and you'll make yourself sick. And when you find a friend, don't outwear your welcome. Show up at all hours, and he'll get fed up. Right? We've all had people cross our boundaries. We have boundaries. We don't expect people to cross them. We've all had people that do cross them. I don't know about you, but I don't like people that stand too close to me when we're talking. Because I, I keep taking a step back. You know, you got this, there's a, this distance, it's Okay. But you come too close to me, I'm going to move back a little bit. That's a boundary that I have. Each of us have a right to set those boundaries for ourselves. And we should work within others' boundaries. Here's the third scripture. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 15 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is that... that uh, Farm implement, implements the word I'm looking for. It's a wooden thing that you put over two oxen and you gang, gang them together so the two oxen pull together. That's a yoke. So we're talking about binding, being together, too close. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? You see, being yoked together binds you to that other person's values. We typically use this scripture as it applies to marriage. A Christian should not be yoked together with a non-Christian. Why? should be obvious. The Christian wants to go this way with their life and the non-Christian wants to go that way. It's just a matter of time before all your values are so far apart. But the same thing applies to a business agreement. Don't be yoked together with an unbeliever for the same reason. Christians have one set of values. Non-Christians have another set of values. Don't be linked up with them because you're going to be end up paying the price so don't do it. So the point is, set boundaries with the world. We live in the world, can't function outside of the world, we're a part of the world, but we have to set boundaries with the world. 
We can't let the world step over our boundaries. And we can't step over the boundaries out there into the world because it's a dangerous place. Here's the fourth point. Rescuers should set boundaries. Some of you in this room are rescuers. You want to rescue somebody. You want to help somebody. You, you're, you're quick to see the needs out there in people's lives and you want to rescue them. But you need to set boundaries with that. Rescuers need to set boundaries. Proverbs 19.19 says, A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them and you'll have to do it again. That's just wisdom. If you're a rescuer and you want to rescue everybody, you're just going to have to rescue them again and rescue them again and rescue them again till they learn the lesson. And the only way they learn, learn the lesson is if you stop rescuing them. Every parent needs to learn this about your kids. I know you love your kids. You don't want to see your kids have pain. I know you want the best for your children. But listen, stop rescuing them. Let them pay the penalty and they'll learn the lesson. What you're doing is you're taking God's ability to change them away from them. You're trying to play God in your kids' lives. So rescuers need to set boundaries. Here's uh, number five. Boundaries protect you from boundaryless people. There's people you know, you work with them, you, you, some of them are in your house. They don't know how to set boundaries. You setting boundaries protects you from them because they will walk all over you. They will take advantage of you. They'll keep coming back for more and more and more. And we need to set boundaries. Here's, uh, oh, here's the scripture. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25. Don't hang out with angry people. Don't keep company with hotheads. Bad temper is contagious. Don't get infected. When you're relating to other people, you need to influence them. Don't let them influence you. That's the point. And here's number six. Protect yourself from negatives in this world. Negatives. You know what a negative is? I think you do if you just think about it. There's negatives everywhere in this world. Pick up a newspaper, read through the articles that are in the newspaper, listen to the evening news, and you're going to see negative after negative after negative after negative. Us Christians should have a positive attitude. We need to look for the good in the world. If God's at work doing good in the world, where is it? We need to look for that. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers... Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these and the God of peace will be with you. Do you want the God of peace with you? then look for the positive and not the negative. Look for the wins and not the losses. If I counted all the losses, every, every, if I counted back on all the times somebody who came to this church 
and accepted Christ and told me they were, they, they were glad they were here, they wanted to serve however they could, and then walked out the door and left, if I counted all those people, it would be most discouraging. So I'm always looking at the new people that are coming in saying, we like this church, we love this church, we want to be a part of it. That's what I, that's what I thrive on. Because I want to lead a, a body of Christ that's positive, it's exciting, optimistic, can't wait to see what God's going to do next. I want to be a part of a church like that. But I have to think positive and not on the negative. If you're going to listen to the radio while you're commuting here and there, turn on something like WBCL. That's positive. Positive. The songs we listen to, don't listen to the junk that's negative and pulls you down. Listen to something positive. Okay, I'm way over time. i got to move. Here's, here's the fourth thing we learn about loving like Jesus loved. Jesus loved his Father. He loved his Father. You and I need to love our Father. Who is our Father? Is God your Father? Satan is the God of this world. If you love this world, you're not loving the Father. You need to love the Father, and then you won't love this world. John says it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves me, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. It's all temporal. But whoever does the will of God will live forever. Did did you know that God designed our bodies to have a limited lifespan? If you've been around a while, you've seen it in me. I keep getting older and older and older. And I'm wise enough to know I'm not going to be around on planet Earth forever. I need to plan for when I'm not going to be around here. My body has a limited lifespan. But did you know God created your soul to be eternal? That soul, that part of you that lives inside this body and looks out of these windows, that soul is designed by God to live eternally. Now, after my body dies, then where does my soul go? That's the question. Do I want to go to heaven, spend it with God, or do I want to go to the other place which wasn't created for me at all, was created for the devil, created for Satan? It wasn't created for humans. But since our ancestors, Adam and Eve, accepted Christ, or excuse me, they re- they, Adam and Eve rejected God and his goodness in the Garden of Eden and accepted Satan and what he tempted them to do, we've all become descendants of Adam and Eve. I need a deliverer. I need a savior. So I can't love this world. This world is temporal. It only lasts a short while. But with God, it's eternal life. I want my soul to spend eternity in heaven, not in hell. So I'm thankful for Jesus dying on the cross for me, making a way for me to get to heaven so I can be with him eternally.
I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in one last song. But I want you to think about where's your soul going to be? Where's your soul going after your body dies? You know it's happening. You know it's coming. I suggest you make your plan where you want your soul to be. And if you want to be in heaven with Him, if that's where your soul is going to go, you need to make peace with God now. It's through Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to think about that. Because it's your soul. It's your future. It's where you're going. That's important. Let's all stand together. Maybe you need to say a few words to God. Find peace in your heart with Him this morning.